Lockheed Super Electra is making a series of flights from Minneapolis to Seattle when something goes wrong. How did this flight crash in Montana after taking off in our oldest reported crash yet? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And we have... Emily. Yay! Woo! We have Emily back again. Yeah. Yeah. Fun times, friends. Fun, Fun times. times. It's snowing. It is snowing. It's cold. It is very cold. I'm in PJs. <laughs> I considered wearing those PJs, and then I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm going to get judged by somebody. So, what are we covering today, Emily? <laughs> Still in my thunder? <laughs> What's up? Hey. Emily actually requested that we do this particular story, and as such, I'm making her do the narrative. Yeah. I was shenaniganed. I got left out of this one. No, you didn't. I did. It's fine. You're talking later. Later, kind of. I'm still mostly mostly in the dark. I don't know what happened, so. That's okay. You don't know what happened? It It was quite a time. Once upon a time, we tried to fly a plane, and it didn't work. Yeah. And it was bad. That's usually how most of these go. So, what are we covering today? Northwest Airlines 1. Wow. Flight <laughs> 1. Old. <laughs> trip 1 is what they called it in the report. Trip 1. Yep. Trip oh, 1. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it was the first trip we took. Northwest Airlines went from January 12th, 1939. And it was scheduled to fly from Chicago, Illinois to Seattle, Washington with stops in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Fargo, North Dakota, Bismarck, North Dakota, Mile City, Montana, Butte, Montana, and Spokane, Washington. Oh, that's a lot of stops. Well, to be fair, they had to fly low because this was before pressurized planes. Yes, and it and they had to refuel forever. probably at every one of those stops. Oh, probably. <laughs> this is in 1939. <laughs> this airplane, though, is supposed to have a lot of good fuel range. This but is, yeah, it still sucks. This is 30 years before we went to the moon. Oh, I know. <laughs> so. There's that math. There's you. that math. They were short legs. They were all very short, except it probably felt like forever. <laughs> it probably f- like took half a day just to get there. Well, and each one of those legs, you're talking about an airplane that flies really slow. So, yeah. He did really good, okay? You okay. leave that plane alone. <laughs> it's fine. So, the f- leg from Chicago to Minneapolis was canceled, and so the flight actually originated in Minneapolis. I couldn't find why it was canceled. Nobody, There's a lot of reasons that could happen. Just nobody Weather. wanted to go between the two. Yeah, they no, were just like, not Meh. enough passengers. We're not doing that. Meh. They were losing money. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> All of the above. So, yeah. So, it was flown on an aircraft with tail number NC-17389. Weird tail number. You're a weird tail number. Yeah. <laughs> Probably. (laughs) This is why you don't want me to talk more. Which was a Lockheed Model 14H, which is, I also believe, a Super Electra. Yes, correct. A Super Electra. Yes. Based on the original Electra, which was a smaller, also twin engine piston airplane. It's just a larger version, basically, of the Electra, known as the... Oh, gosh, that plane's so old. The Super Electra. And it's typical of the time with the tail wheel. We didn't know much about tricycle gear yet, which is what we call where the the nose has a a landing gear under it rather than the tail, so that the airplane sits flat rather than... Instead of tilted? Leaning backward. (laughs) 
So instead, at the time, you always had to climb literally into the airplane and climb up to your seat. Hardcore parkour. Yeah. Most of these airplanes were really luxurious inside. Also, no seatbelts. Because who needs seatbelts? At that point, it's like a school bus. Exactly. By the time you crash, you're probably dead. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) That got dark so fast. I was like, like a school bus. Yeah, is that what By you the think time you <laughs> there was there should be a break between those two sentences. <laughs> no, that's not what I think of school buses. Thank God. All right, it had been in service under Northwest Airlines for exactly two years and one month prior to this flight, December thirteenth, nineteen thirty-seven. So a new airplane. Yeah, relatively, and it had a standard gross weight. Of 15,650 pounds, provisional gross weight of 17,400 pounds east and 16,500 pounds west of Billings, Montana. Do you know what that means? I'm guessing they drop some passengers or something? Yeah, I'm guessing that has to do with the change in their what they were carrying between the different locations and the change in amount of fuel carried. Oh, that's true. Maybe. Probably just so they can get over some mountains. You can't be heavy and fly over mountains. Yeah. Okay. This whole airplane probably pretty much weighed what some jet engines weigh these days. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) It was just the whole weight in the report didn't make any sense. Yeah, I get that. And that's later, too. The trip was flown by Captain C.B. Chamberlain. Oh, typical of these old reports, the stupid double... You leave them alone. They always do the abbreviated names, and it's fine. That's fine. It's like I'm not Cooper. angry, you're angry. It's like D.B. Cooper. He had 11,800 hours of flight time, and over 600 of those were on the Lockheed 14H. Hmm. And first officer R.B. Norby, who had 4,400 hours of flight time, also with more than 600 being on the Lockheed 14H. Nice. Both pilots possess the required ratings and certifications for the competency for the flight and equipment. That's good. So they're usually a good trained. thing to have. Yeah. <laughs> One would hope. I'd hope so. All right. So into the flight, they departed Minneapolis at four o'clock Central Standard Time and proceeded normally to Fargo, North Dakota. There, they were cleared to head to Bismarck, North Dakota, and departed at five forty p.m. Central Standard Time. And they successfully made that leg as well, arriving in Bismarck at 6.57 p.m. Central Standard Time. And from there, they were re-cleared to depart for Mile City, Montana at 7.07. They departed. They arrived at Mile City at 8.41 p.m. Central Standard Time. Or since they had crossed, it was 7.41 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. See, they're all pretty short. Yeah, It wasn't so bad. Nah, not too bad. Most of the flight to Mile City was flown over overcast. And there had been some ice on the plane, but it was de-iced and dried upon arrival. So some weather, but not so bad. They even de-iced back then. Good for them. Yeah, they figured that one out pretty quick. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Now, mind you, so Emily requested this flight as it's the earliest report we could find. That does not, by any means entail that this is the first accident no they're, they're, that's Definitely. not even close to the first accident this was just the earliest report we could possibly find yeah and number get. one <laughs> now we are talking earlier than we've ever talked before obviously but also i mean we are talking prior to world war ii yeah. this is crazy 
during World War II? Well, early days of World War II. It wasn't quite World War II yet. It was, it was, but it wasn't. We weren't in World War II yet. <laughs> not even close. <laughs> yeah. Let me re- let's rephrase. The United States was not in World War II. The yet. World War II, as history in the United States is taught, isn't even close yet. All right. The flight was delayed from Miles City to Billings due to adverse weather in Billings, Montana. They waited for over an hour, but eventually, once the weather cleared from Billings, they were able to take off. Upon departure, the aircraft had a gross weight of 14,800 pounds. Cool. That's its total weight at takeoff. Total full weight with everything loaded. I still don't fully understand the numbers, though. Just continue. So gross weight is literally the airplane with everything loaded on board, what it weighs, leaving the ground. I guess my problem with that is above it's like 17,000 and 16,000 on either side of Billings. But here it's only 14,000. That's because they dropped fuel and stuff, and maybe they dropped passengers too. No, when they, they were... started. Yeah, but we haven't even 40, gotten 000. to Billings. Was that their estimated gross weight? Maybe. Oh, that might have been estimated. Because this could have been their actual gross weight at takeoff, which means that it was much lighter than they were expecting, which isn't always a good thing. Maybe. That makes more sense. What's a provisional gross weight? That I don't know. What's the context? This model aircraft is approved by the Civil Aeronautics Authority for air carrier operation over the routes flown by Northwest Airlines with a standard gross weight of 15,650 pounds. So I think that's its... Okay, so provisional, as it is in the dictionary, means arranged or existing for the present, possibly to be changed later. So maybe... Oh, maybe estimated. Yeah. yeah, so it's an estimate. Oh, okay, so maybe that's part of the problem. That instead of using the word <laughs> estimate, they used provisional because they have to use those fancy words. So to me, the, the, the context there for provisional would probably mean that's what the airplane is allowed to carry between those legs, and that is then what it is estimated to carry. Got it. Okay. Between those legs. Okay. Sorry that for our means... listeners if that was as confusing or more than it was for us. Upon departure, the aircraft had a gross weight of fourteen thousand eight hundred pounds, which included male. Cargo, 450 gallons of fuel, 70 of which had been added in Miles City, 32 gallons of oil, and two passengers. That's a lot of freaking oil. So they're it's just funny that they always had taken take... mail. <laughs> yeah, mostly taken mail. It, it's f- so funny to me when they with these older airplanes and the older reports how they also have to account for the weight of oil <laughs> because they had to carry 32 gallons of oil in the airplane. I mean, you're talking about massive pistons. Don't get me wrong. This is just a problem we don't have anymore. <laughs> we don't have to account for oil weight because there just isn't. Miss Clara Morris from Mandan, North Dakota, and Mr. R.S. Zanzer from Billings, North Dakota were the passengers. That's it? That's it. Cool. That's it. And the two pilots. I, so obviously they were traveling together. Yes, obviously. A couple. <laughs> I really hope so. Otherwise, there should be a third escort. Yes. They took off to the northwest at 9.14 p.m. Mountain Standard, leaving the ground at the intersection of two field runways and crossing the field boundary normally. Upon reaching an altitude of 500 feet, the aircraft began to turn left slowly, which was the normal process to connect to the west leg of the radio range to continue to Billings. Okay. Okay. So it's normal. So it's fine. Good, good, good. Shortly after starting the turn, however, the plane began to lose altitude rapidly. Uh-oh. Oh. <laughs> We're only 500 feet high. This oh. isn't very much to give. Nope. 
It descended nearly to the ground before the descent was checked and the aircraft pulled up in a sharp climb. They reached the altitude of 500 feet again and immediately turned sharply left and descended rapidly again. The aircraft struck the ground in a ravine and headed southeasterly, which left the left wing and the nose slightly down. It traveled for approximately 280 feet from its contact point, scattering debris along the path. Yikes. November Charlie 17389 came to rest on an incline of 2,650 feet from the west boundary of the Miles City Airport and 1,200 feet south of a projection of the north boundary, where it was completely destroyed by fire. The crash resulted in the death of all four aboard the plane. Thankfully, wow. it was only four, but yikes. Yeah, for sure. I don't believe there was any details of the wreckage, so... That doesn't surprise me. You don't get much of a description yeah. for that. The in, The entire report was five pages. Yeah, that, yeah, It was scattered behind them. It blew up in fire. Yeah, there you go. With the oil and the gas. The Miles City Airport is still there, and it is still named the Miles City Airport. Wow. That's pretty rare for airports that old. I guess it makes sense that it all burst into flames with all the oil. And, and the, the gas. And the new fuel. Yeah. yeah. This investigation was performed by the Air Safety Board, addressed to the Civil Aeronautics Authority. So not even the CAA. CAB. CAB, sorry. Yeah, no. Yeah, this, this is, is the CAA. To the CAA. Which was pre-FAA? Yes, pre-FAA. Everything's weird. Pre-FAA, pre-CAB, all those things. Before everything you this know. Is, this is before we knew anything about airplanes crashed. <laughs> They had crashed. We just didn't think to go. Why? We knew. <laughs> we knew enough to write the report. Though. Okay. To be fair, airplanes crashed before this, and we just ended up always going. That's eh, kind of a consequence of not knowing anything about why things fly yet. Yeah, because basically. it was so new. It was such a new thing. We were like, eh, we're just probably not good at this yet. Probably. Let's get a little bit better at this before we start asking questions. Which is why they developed insurance that you buy before you get on the plane. Yep, and that lasted for a long time. Yep. Investigators performed a thorough examination of the wreckage, but were unable to find any evidence of what caused the fire, and determined that there was no failure to structural systems or control systems prior to the crash. That's good. They also completely tore apart the engines, but were able to determine that both engines and propellers were operating at a high power setting at the time of the crash. Did they detail how any of this was determined? No. But again, this is early aviation? Typical. A small wooden box cover, 8 inches by 10 inches, was found away from the fire, 15 feet from the initial impact. This part was a cover for part of the control console between the two pilot seats. And this console contains controls for the dump valve controls, flare controls, emergency hydraulic controls, and the fuel cross-feed control valve, along with the wrench to work said valve. Basically, these were all the controls reserved for emergencies, and it was in the floor, between the seats. Yeah, things were primitive. What's your problem with that? Getting them or dealing with them while you're... Reaching them? Flying. That's fine. In an emergency? The pilots had to have really long arms. (laughs) Reach down here, lift this panel, grab this wrench... Now, they were advanced enough to design the the cover such that when you opened it, it turned on the light to illuminate the control panel. Ooh. Ooh. Had an on switch. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, it was like your fridge where yeah. it, it didn't have a switch for the light. It yeah, just it a, opened with the... It had a circuit trip. They specifically mentioned that in the report. Wow. <laughs> they just wanted to prove it's how very advanced they were. Yes. How advanced it is. At the time, okay, to be fair. Yes, probably. Pretty advanced. Yeah. Light probably. bulbs also still not great at the time. Yeah. Not very efficient. Now, there was no fire damage to the top of the cover, but there was a burn mark on the underside, about an inch and a half by two inches, located over the crossfeed valve. Ooh. This crossfeed valve is to be kept in the closed position unless something goes wrong in the fuel system to one engine, in which case the valve would be opened and fuel would flow across the plane to the other engine that isn't getting fuel. Yeah, I was going to say, that's probably the most important valve under that cover. Because that yeah. is the one you particularly don't want to fail, because either one, you lose fuel to an engine, or two, probably a fire. Let me get into it. A constant pressure of four and a half pounds was kept in the valve, and leaks were common, especially reported in this airline on these planes. Great. Investigators were unable to determine what may have caused a spark to light the leak, but they did determine that a fire probably started in there and burned up into the cockpit. This crossfeed valve has a leakage trough in anticipation for leaks, but there was no provision for draining it from the outside. Oh, that's nice. So it just built up in there. Yeah. And the valve was difficult to inspect and service from its location under the emergency control box. This was really thought out, guys. Uh, I hate <laughs> when this happens, because then my commentary is, then why don't you just fix it and put it somewhere else? That's well, basically what they said. it costs too much money. Because it was 1939? <laughs> so, okay, if you have a part somewhere, even if it's not, let's, let's say it's in your car, too, right? I know there's cars like this. Mm -hmm. You have a part that has to be regularly serviced so it can work correctly. Why do you put it somewhere that is hard to get to? Yeah. Can we, for a quick second... Our former roommates, they had a Chrysler Sebring. And to get to their battery, you had to go through the wheel well. Yeah. So in other words, you can't actually get to the battery. You can't do anything with the battery, which is fine. They made contact points on the outside, within the engine compartment. They have like a big sticker that says positive battery contact. And then on the frame, it just says negative battery contact. It's like... Oh, God. But you can't Guys. actually get to the battery, so if you ever have to change it out for whatever reason... It's you have really, to go somewhere to get it changed. You can't do it yourself. really labored and expensive, as opposed to most cars where you just undo a bolt, take a bracket off, pull the battery out, put a new one in, put the bracket back in, bolt, done. Literally, it takes about that long. So, this whole concept in engineering of making a part unreachable still permeates today. It So, okay, if it doesn't have to be regularly serviced, like if you have a plane and this part has to be serviced every sea check or whatever, I can see why that would be in a place that's hard to get to because you have to take the plane out of commission to do it. But if there's a part like this that needs to be regularly checked and drained, why isn't it that you can't get to it easily? To yeah. do that maintenance from the ground. I don't know. See? This uh, is my problem. <laughs> and at this point, there is now two years worth of leak, I, assumedly, just built up in this trough. That's nice. Because it was 1939, and we didn't know that that's what could cause a plane to burst into flames. I mean, f fuel can Shh. do that. <laughs> <laughs> in any case, that's basically all investigators had to say on the matter, and here's the findings. 
Wow. <laughs> I love this report. As this is one of the first reports ever, it actually kind of set the precedent for the format of a report. So the first many findings are irrelevant, and they're like, oh, this was fine. So let's skip down to finding eight. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Instead of it being the first two findings, they made it seven findings. How many? This was fine. This was fine. This was fine. Were there Air- seven of them, cause. obviously? This wasn't a cause, and this wasn't a cause. Aircraft was certif- certificated as airworthy. Both airmen had ratings and certificates of competency. Properly dispatched. Properly cleared to billings. All these things, yeah, are totally Weather irrelevant. was clear. Here's where it began its takeoff. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. Eight. Subsequent to executing a normal turn to the left and reaching an estimated altitude of 500 feet, the maneuvers of the aircraft were abnormal. The aircraft crashed at 9.15 p.m. Mountain Standard Time in a ravine located 2,650 feet west of the west western boundary of the Miles City Airport and 1,200 feet south of a projection of the north boundary of the airport, resulting in the complete destruction of the aircraft and the death of all persons on board. Parts of the aircraft found near the wreckage and, and the unusual maneuver execute, executed by the aircraft while in flight indicate that a fire of considerable intensity developed prior to the crash in the control cabin of the aircraft in the immediate vicinity of the gasoline crossfeed valve. It has not been possible to determine the exact origin and source of the fire. So did it burst into flames before it hit the ground? Yes. So there was a fire in the cockpit and it's kind of just assumed that that's likely what got them distracted or whatever. And lost control. Okay, they that makes very sense. High, okay. And it was dark. The aircraft engines were operating at a high rate of power output at the time of the crash. There were no indications of either structural failure of the aircraft or its control system or of aircraft engine failure prior to impact. Probable cause. Fire in the pilot's control cabin resulting in loss of control of the aircraft. That's Thanks. Pretty <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> I love this report. Contributing factor. Improper location and installation of that portion of the aircraft's cross-feed fuel system which passed through the fuselage. As I said, why? It doesn't need to be that way. Now we'll take a brickety break. Break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Recommendation. As in it's one. It is recommended that that part of the cross-feed fuel system of the Lockheed 14H aircraft, which passes through the fuselage, be relocated. Yeah. And the installation improved so as to provide for the drainage outside the fuselage of any gasoline leakage which might occur, and to provide for the elimination from the fuselage of any gasoline fumes which might accumulate as a result of such leakage. Wow. There you go, Miranda. You Thank know, you. I think they hit this one right on the head. This, you think this, this so? Na- this was... <laughs> Nailed. Totally. Just complete. like, duh. <laughs> you can't start making things better until you start writing reports. That's, That's fair. That's what I've learned. That's fair. And this was definitely kind of a duh problem. So having this report. This five-page report. Okay, but as a formal thing, and as something to be presented to a government agency, 
is something that can can be taken much more seriously where they can say, fix it. We know you want to save money. We know that we haven't told you so far that this could be a problem, but it's a problem. Fix it. And this could have been, like, after how many times this possibly happened. Right. Okay. So, (laughs) let's talk about that for a second. The Lockheed Super Electra, the Lockheed Model 14, had only been flying for two years by this point. Period. The first flight was in July of 1937. And they were, the first operator was in October of 1937. So this airplane was only two months after that was when it was delivered to Northwest, which Northwest was also a very new airline at the time. We'll get into that in a minute. Here's the thing about that. The crash was in 1939. Between the time that the airplane was certified and the time of this crash, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Seven airplanes had crashed. Oh my god. <laughs> of this model. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> was it on this airline or um, no. one of them uh, was flight 2? <laughs> yeah, the very first that was the crash one you initially told me the we very were going to. F- oh, no. The very first crash of this airplane in operational history was Northwest flight 2. And then <laughs> just uh what was it? Yeah, not even, not, just, yeah, a year and a half later, basically, almost two years later, Northwest Flight 1 crashed. So, if this had happened today... They would be grounded. Yeah! Yes. Seven accidents in two years. Imagine yeah. if the Max had done that. After, yeah, no, <laughs> after two accidents now, now, they ground the plane. To be fair, not many of these killed very many people. <laughs> Because the airplane doesn't hold very many Yeah, I was like, the airplane holds what? A maximum of maybe 10 people, if that? The the Max managed to kill about as many seats as the entirety of this, the manufactured Lockheed 14s probably could hold in their entire lifespan. So in other words, the Max in two crashes killed almost 400 people. That's probably about as many seats as even existed on Lockheed 14s ever. Dang. So... (laughs) Point being, there's a reason why only two airplane crashes with the Max made a difference versus eight of these. So, to be fair, and we've we've already talked about this earlier in the episode, Mm -hmm. but they didn't do a lot of investigating into what was going on, and they didn't have the technology to do so. Right. They didn't have cockpit voice recorders yet. They didn't have FDRs yet. Right. So, sometimes stuff airplanes would crash they would have no idea what happened right when i look at them most of these were immediately after takeoff sound familiar huh huh with nothing else given huh that means they knew there was a problem (laughs) (laughs) when they made this report they were like okay that's it we need somebody's gotta do something (laughs) we got we gotta write it down yeah we need to send it to somebody who makes the changes yes one of them was presumed to be lightning they believe the airplane was struck by lightning, which, again, if it had residual fuel in it, not a good thing. Isn't that one where the person... Maybe that's not the same thing. I thought it was a Lockheed Electra, but... That was an Electra, not a Super Electra. Oh, different okay. than... Yeah. Those. We'll talk this about that on better. a mini-episode someday. It didn't have a very good safety history as an airplane. Now, to be fair, neither did any airplane at this point. The Douglas DC-3 was probably the most reliable airplane during this period of time in history, and that was for a reason. They also built... A lot of them. 
mostly because of World War II. And so if you flew on an airline, actually, after immediately after World War II, the DC-3 was likely what you flew on, and it likely flew in World War II. I've heard, I've heard a lot of stories of people flying during the late 40s, early 50s on these older airplanes that flew in World War II, and there were still bullet holes in them. There is a Wikipedia page dedicated to a list of accidents and incidents involving the DC-3 in the 1930s. Yeah! Yeah, it wasn't any better in reality. There was just more of them. And Lockheed didn't have a particular stronghold on the industry at the time. However, you can... Again, this shows how aviation was really developing because you'd think, wow, this airplane was a death trap. What a nightmare. Well, not exactly. A lot of people still thought this was a very good airplane because it was really capable. This was the this airplane set a lot of world records, actually, still. As a matter of fact, it was the first airplane to actually get itself across the Atlantic, the first airliner to actually get itself across the Atlantic on its own power. Otherwise, all of them being delivered to customers in Europe and stuff were all taken in crates on boats. So this airplane actually flew across the Atlantic. However, it did so barely. So... <laughs> <laughs> the the first case of this was it was to be taken from Burbank, California to the operator Lot Polish Airlines, which is still around. Very old airline. All the way over in Warsaw. I didn't realize how long Lot had been around until we started looking into this. Yeah, Lot is one of the oldest airlines on Earth. Go check out our episode two. We cover a lot of Polish Airlines. Yeah, we Accident. Do. Incident. We do. Yes. It wasn't an accident. It was an incident. Incident. Yeah, well, they lost the airplane, but yeah. This airplane, they flew from Burbank southbound through Mexico, through South America, all the way over, and then they hopped over to Africa from South America, and then flew up from Africa to Europe, because they wanted to cross at the shortest point. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I was going to say. They don't have a lot of, like, they can't go a long distance on one tank of gas. Right. It did have pretty good range, and because of its range for the time, it managed to cross the Atlantic. And they were able to deliver this airplane to the customer by crossing the Atlantic. Now, it also broke world records by being one of the first airplanes to circumnavigate the world. And Howard Hughes did that, as a matter of fact. One of the most famous aviators in history. Pioneer in aviation, no doubt. And crazy, absolutely crazy. <laughs> He's the one who made the plane completely out of wood. Yeah, the big giant spruce, the spruce goose. goose. Spruce goose. Which, yeah. by the way, is in a museum in Oregon. Yes. It's still there. I have sat in that cockpit. So I have, have I. Sat, I have sat in that seat. I've worn his hat. Fancy. So, a couple of statistics. There were 354 Super Electras built. Yep. According to the Aviation Safety Network, there were 54 whole loss occurrences. <laughs> it's like a fourth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like a seventh, guys. That's not very good. Compared to airplanes these days, that is not a very good safety record. What the heck? Only 20 of these Model H's were built, though. That's fair. I don't know if that was airline-specific as it is today. What? The variants. Oh. I don't know. Oh, wait. It's very pretty specific. Oh, it was based on which engine was put on it. Yeah. It's pretty typical. So... The 20 Model 14Hs built were powered by two 875-horsepower Pratt & Whitney Hornet engines. Yes. Wikipedia says there were 607 DC-3s built and 4,593 hull loss occurrences. Yeah. No, there were like 10,000 of those built. (laughs) 
Okay, to be fair, Wikipedia, not the most uh, yeah. reliable of sources. They don't Says know. the teacher. They flew like... Teachers I, always say that. They flew like point. They flew like 2,000 of those. Because it's true. Anyone can edit a Wikipedia page. They flew That's like 2,000 of those airplanes on the raid of Berlin. Okay. More than 16,000 DC-3s and military version C-47s were built. That's more right. <laughs> so the Lockheed Super Electra, yeah, it wasn't... The Electra actually had a more famous history than the Super Electra did, but it was supposed to be a bigger, you know, more powerful version of the Electra. It was supposed to be better, but ultimately Lockheed ended up moving on to much bigger airplanes very quickly anyways. They ended up developing eventually the Lockheed Constellation, which was a significantly larger airplane in competition with their rival Douglas for the DC-4. So this airplane didn't have a super long history because of that. A lot of airlines bought it, but that was mostly because at the time, air travel was still very rare, especially prior to World War II. And then during World War II, especially, essentially all air travel stopped because all the airlines, it was a mandate basically by the government that all airliners became government property and they had to be used as war effort machines. Fun fact, if you've ever gone to a airplane museum, they've taken all the engines out of those planes because the United States government says, if we need them and they work for something and we're in a war, guess what? We're using it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so whenever a plane is taken out of commission and put into a museum, they take the engines out. Yeah, legally military aircraft, If in order for them to be legally considered out of service, they have to remove at least one operating engine. That's just legally how it goes. Otherwise, at a moment's notice, if we end up in a world war, then... They can be used. They can, they're allowed, the U.S. government and the military are allowed to use the airplane if it's operable. Now, there are a lot of museums throughout the country that have airplanes ready to go. They are still yep. operational and will be used they do. in case of war. One of them is the one that we visited in Oregon, which I can't now remember the name of. Are you talking about the... Um... The Western Antique Aeroplane and Automobile Museum. Yeah, the WAM Museum. WAM? Wham. I don't know. I'm pretty sure there are also planes on... We've been to... Wings over the Rockies. Well, yes. that, but most of those planes, the engines are taken out. Those are all removed. No, it was the Midway when we were on the USS Midway. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of those aircraft... The It's an aircraft carrier. The carrier is in, uh, is operational, but it's a museum. Like They can't use it as a, a carrier anymore. But the planes that sit on top of it, I th most of them still have engines. So Yeah. So another example of this is in relatively recent history, well, really recent history, considering, uh, a C-130 crashed in Alabama and killed its 30-something person crew just two years ago, I think it was. And that fleet of C-130s from a very specific squadron based out of New York, three years ago? Mm -hmm. Okay. So three years ago, that very specific squadron based out of New York had their entire fleet grounded while they investigated the accident to make sure that it wasn't something fleet-wide with their specific C-130s that was wrong. And I, I don't know, did they ever find the cause on that one? Would we say? even be able to know? They, maybe. Would they publish depends it on, for the public? Depends it's on what it is. It's published by the Marine Corps. Interesting. The accident was caused by improper repairs conducted in 2011 on a corroded propeller blade. That would be why they grounded the fleet. Oops. 
So they grounded the fleet, and what they and what they did was literally they just took two engines out of each C-130 they had to ground, because they are not allowed to fly it. And to answer your question, yes, the report is public. Okay. Because I just found it. <laughs> I figured, since you just quoted that. We oh, just, no, I quoted that off Wikipedia. We I, just, you know, we just don't cover military crashes very often, so we don't have to except deal with Except in minisodes. So if you want some, let us know. Patreon. Yeah. This airplane had a very pretty short history, considering what it was, and most airplanes during that time had a pretty short history because the aviation industry was just changing so quickly, especially with the world wars that were happening, that no airplane really had a very long production time or long service life before new advancements happened very quickly, and we wanted something bigger, better, faster. So that's what we made. It was a stepping stone to develop the planes we have today. And with most airplanes, there's only a handful of variants in reality. With this airplane, there were 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 variants of the airplane. And some of them are Japanese variants. Yes. There were 17 variants of this airplane. That's a lot for not very many produced. So that means no two of these were probably ever alike. (laughs) Which is okay. Now for the airline, Northwest Airlines at the time had only been operating... For five years. So the airline also wasn't very big or structured or anything. It got big. Eventually. Later. Yes. Most of the airlines at this point were pretty brand new anyways. But yeah, it it was a brand new airline. So you can kind of expect it's like, yeah, we're just learning this too. <laughs> one of those variants, by the way, there was only one of them. Oh. Built for Howard Hughes for yeah. his around the world escapade. Of course. Yeah, he had it. Fitted, I'm sure, with extra had to fuel be tanks. Extra. It you was need... it was fitted with auxiliary tanks in the cabin, as yeah. well as survival equipment, navigational equipment, and communication equipment. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Now all of those things can be combined into one thing <laughs> instead of being separate things. Yeah. He's crazy. If you guys are yes. ever interested to learn about him, he was a nut job, a brilliant nut job, like a lot of like a lot of geniuses people. are. <laughs> Yeah, he really did have a massive hand in shaping the aviation industry. He was also really big in Hollywood, of course. But he started and owned TWA, for those that don't know, Transworld Airlines, which is gone now. But but that was, still a big deal. That was, yeah, one of the two big operators in U.S. airline history from that time period. That and Pan Am. Transworld Airways? Didn't it change? It changed. Okay. I think uh, I both- looked this up at one point. Because I asked Christy, and it, it was both, so I was like, which one do I put? She's like, I don't know. Both airlines have actually changed their names slightly over time. It depends. He owned TWA, and he had this big hand in shaping what airlines did during the time, and reshaping the way airplanes looked, and the way people traveled. This was... So he was definitely big in that regard, and... To be honest, for him to have enough faith in this airplane anyways to take it around the world and do this circumnavigation trip like he did, uh, pretty crazy, too. I mean, he broke a a record that way, too. Now, that said, he figured out how to do it short, but that's okay. He he went around the northern hemispheres around a, a, a high latitude, so like he went to Paris, which, if you know anything, if if you look at a globe... Traveling around the top of the globe is much shorter than traveling around the bottom of the globe, or the middle of the globe, I should say. 
So, in other words, he did a small circle around the globe, not a full large circle around the globe. So he only did 14,000 miles versus the 19 it takes to go all the way around the world at its full width. At the equator, basically. Yes, at the equator. Well, there's your history lesson for the day. Yeah. Northwest Airlines Flight 1. 1. That's an easy one to remember. Uno. (laughs) Thanks, Emily, for your contribution and your request. Your shenanigans. (laughs) That. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember, Patreon. Check it out. Submit your stories. Submit your questions. And we'll catch all of you next time. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wear a mask, please. God, wear a mask. Everything's getting worse. Please wear a mask. And we'll see how... Thanks for voting. Yeah. (laughs) If you voted, thanks for voting. We voted, so yay. All right. Here's the episode. To our U.S. listeners. (laughs) Yeah, everybody else, go on with your lives. Yes. Have a great week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.